0: to Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode six. This week, we're going back to the usual formula. We're covering five albums. Today, I'm joined by Rob. Hello. And uh, first-time guest, arrestus Hello. Uh, yes, yeah, so this week, we're delving into possibly quite dangerous ground, because we are covering three, like, titanically classic metal albums. Like these are, these are bands that everyone will know about, and almost certainly would have actually heard these particular albums, so... Don't know how much new we're going to be able to add to the discussion. Almost certainly we will miss your favourite story about these albums. But, you know, if that is the case, please email in and let us know because I've maybe not heard it and it'd be quite cool to (laughs) get a new perspective on that. So the theme of this episode is very much sort of classic heavy metal, new wave of British heavy metal style with one slight outlier. I think Oresti is like your background of like, music you're into has got to be the classic heavy metal style.
1: I think that's that's what comes to mind when someone asks me what kind of music do you listen to? Uh, yeah, the answer is definitely the classic heavy metal, even though I sometimes dabble a bit into the screamy stuff. <laughs> it's mostly the cheesy,
0: basic, if you want, uh, classic heavy metal. Because it's great. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Definitely. yes. Yeah, so the first album we're covering today is... Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast. So this was released in 1982 on EMI. This is the first album with Bruce Dickinson, but we haven't quite hit the classic Maiden lineup at this point. Um, we've, the band lineup is Steve Harris on bass and backing vocals still. Adrian Smith has just joined the... Oh, no, no, he joined on Killers. Um, yeah. uh, Adrian Smith is on guitar and backing vocals. Dave Murray is the other guitar. And Clive Burr, this is his final album as drummer for the band. So this album, I think, takes a massive sort of direction shift from Killers in the, the kind of the punk influence is gone and we now have a, a band building up to being the the stadium metal band they would eventually become. Um, yeah, so Orestes, would you want to give us a quick summary of your feelings on this release? <laughs> I, I can't
1: find the words because there are no words to explain this album uh, this album was a turning point not just for Iron maiden as a band because like you said yeah they completely left behind the the punk genre and they just went straight into heavy metal and i think this is one of the first albums that comes to mind when you you think of the new wave of british heavy metal and for some for some reason it, it seems technically a lot more advanced than the other two maybe it's just it's just that shift from punk to heavy metal it's a lot more... Uh, the guitar work, uh, the vocals, obviously, Bruce in, in mm-hmm. instead of Paul D'Anno. Uh, everything, the pace of the songs, the themes, everything just seems a lot more mature.
0: Something that mm-hmm. might lend to that is um, this album, I, I recently watched the Early Years documentary, and they're saying this album was the first one they went into with none of the demo material left. So Killers was still loads of like their their pre um self-titled material on that album, whereas this one they had to write sort of coming up to their studio session. I think some was also written in studio, so I think that's why we get this, yeah, this this massive leap in songwriting, like this tendency towards more epic songs like How I Be Thy Name. Um, I think maybe the best way for us to cover this one, because most people will know almost every song, that just go through the, the track listing in order, yeah, which means yeah. we start with um, the incredibly contentious... Uh, <laughs> First track, Invaders. It's okay, you can be honest about your feelings. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, Rob, you're, you're actually quite a fan yeah. of this song. <laughs> so, weirdly enough, it took me a long time to get into Invaders. This is one of the first metal albums I got a long time ago. And it took me a while to get into Invaders, but now I actually really like it. It's a silly song, it's very happy. Um, and it's discussing what really is, you know, if you look at the lyrics, and I'm sure Phil will point this out, um, <laughs> quite a contentious, not very nice issue, but it's a very happy song about in- raping and pillaging and all sorts of horrible things. But I do quite like it. It's short, fast, snappy. It's got a real drive to it, which Iron Maiden really brought in heavily on songs like Run to the Hills and Number of the Beast as well. So I take myself in the pro-invaders camp
1: myself as well I'm pro invaders I quite like the pace and the lyrics are silly it's an it's an all-round great song an all-round fantastic iron maiden song but I just feel it's on the wrong album it's it's a really good intro it really sets uh, the pace and the energy for the whole album but uh, apart from maybe run to the hills uh, it's just kind of uh, no not apart I mean as well as run to the hills it's just uh, a bit weird for the for the number of the beast theme Mm, uh, those mm. two stand out in terms of storyline.
0: Whereas, whereas these two uh, have hinted that I, I am really not a fan of this song. I think effectively it is a good Iron Maiden song, but an Iron Maiden song with a way too cheesy chorus. And like when Iron Maiden are a band that really hinge on good choruses, like a lot of why so many of their songs are so great and memorable is they have these, especially with Bruce Dickinson now and vocals and this one does not have a strong chorus it is incredibly silly and as I was pointing and as Rob pointed out earlier with the lyrical themes I pointed this out to Rob before there is a moment in the song where Bruce Dickinson screams raping followed by "do <laughs> <laughs> which just seems so wildly inappropriate
2: particularly when you have songs it's immediately followed by Children of the Damned and then Hallowed Be Their Name and the other songs like The songs. Prisoner which, which are, you know, much more sinister in a way and serious and epic, as we were saying, to have this sort of weird tonal inconsistency. I still like it, but I I do take your point. I think Bruce has actually
0: said in interviews as well that he doesn't think the song was ever good enough to open an album. (laughs) And and when I say it's bad, it's not bad, and say the next album with uh, Quest for Fire, which is just like (laughs) lyrically an unlistenably stupid song.
1: (laughs) Join my quest of fire.
0: so moving on from Invaders we have one of the like undisputed highlights of the album Children of the Damned Mm -hmm. Um, Rob do you want to take this one
2: yeah Children of the Damned is one of maybe my favourite song on this album Um, and I love the way it builds because it's not enormously long actually It's, it's not even five minutes but it starts off very sort of slow and menacing and Builds into the power of Iron Maiden that you really get to feel on this album, and it has such an amazing sort of chorus and end as well, which Bruce's vocals really accentuate. Mm-hmm.
0: And and just absolutely brilliant Dave Murray guitar work, which is mm-hmm. a, another theme throughout this album. You really get his soloing ability at this stage has just reached this absolute peak of like it's something Maiden seemed to have a particular ability with, where their solos are memorable and quite technical still. Mm, mm, mm. Um, yes, so following that, we have The Prisoner, which I think shows the kind of, the the standard Maiden theme um, you get with any of their albums. They don't really have consistent concepts, it's just <laughs> most of the lyrics are, what has Steve Harris been reading or watching recently? <laughs> exactly.
1: They did call up the, the producer of the show, The Prisoner, at the time, and asked him, this is on one of the DVDs, um, the classic albums DVD of Number of the Beast, and the, there's an interview, and there's the producer of the album saying how, how Steve Harris called the producer of the show to ask if they could use the beginning. Oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. information, information, information. <laughs> I can, from the show, and yeah, the the other guy just said, "Do it." Didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't, ask, he didn't ask for any money or anything. It's just just do it. It's fine.
0: <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, again, this is like. Um... I think as the rest is saying before, this shows a bit of the trend on this album to go for longer songs. Like the prisoner goes through quite a few movements. I mean, you forget this, but the song's like over six minutes long, like, Mm -hmm. and it has a very um, involved like middle instrumental section, which soon would become like a total maiden staple of these, Mm -hmm. rather than just having a solo in the middle of the song, having these huge kind of. Like overlapping um, sets of riffs that just build up into what would almost be an awesome instrumental by himself. Like, say, so he took the middle of Power Slave, like that is mm. just an incredible structure. Mm. And we really see him moving towards that in this this album.
2: And there's some really nice drumming on this as well. Nicko McBrain is the iconic Maiden drummer, but Clive yeah. Burr's drumming is. Really great! It accentuates the songs beautifully, and particularly on the "Prisoner," which has the drum intro. Mm. You see the same thing. I'm not sure if he um, uses a double kick pedal or not, actually, but he has that sort of. It feels like he is. Um, well, sorry, using a single pedal, but getting an almost double feel at various points of it. But I just think, like you know, we shouldn't forget that his drumming was also great, and would I think made Maiden just as great a band as they continued on if he stayed with them. What's, sorry. Oh,
0: uh, <laughs> uh, well, I was just gonna say um, with Clive Burr he. Um, from watching that that DVD, it seems like he was just like almost instantly dismissed from the band after like touring this album in Australia. Apparently, they're having issues with him and they never really go into any details. So, I don't know whether his live stamina wasn't up to it because these it's songs t- are tough,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a tough job. And it was multiple sclerosis, so if he was starting to show symptoms back then, he wouldn't be able to. Um, that's, the, that's one of the reasons Joe Jordison left because he has a sort of neurodegenerative problem or something with uh, a muscle problem that's one of the reasons that he shared anyway we don't know what's going mm. on in the background but to come back to the, the album what's really fantastic about Iron Maiden and I don't know whether this is the genius of Steve Heiss at work or not is that how how they make the best use of every single one of their members mm. so as soon as they brought Bruce Dickinson in this whole new massive horizon opened, and they are using it in every single song, from Invaders Mm. all the way to Hallow Be Thy Name. You can see the full range of Bruce's vocals, and like you just said now, Clive Burr's drumming ability, and the guitarist, obviously, and Steve Harris. Well, we don't need to say anything because just Steve Harris. (laughs) (laughs) But you can also see the massive change that happened when uh, first one, after Adrian left, and Yannick Gers came in, and then when all the three guitarists met in uh, Brave New World yeah mm-hmm. they just it just opened massively as if it wasn't the horizons weren't broad enough they just opened massively with three different guitars and it's just i don't know who is to credit for this but it just shows that their ability to make the best of their members which is just means that they're a fantastic band
0: oh yeah yeah definitely yeah. i think it, there's certainly something to be said as well for getting picked up by a big label and being given like the production and sound that means you can hear absolutely everything on their albums like there is no way like Steve Harris's bass is going to be buried on an Iron Maiden album. Yeah, that,
1: yeah that, that's that's kind of, well, you know, he's the leader and you know he's the leader. Undisputed. In fact, I remember in Download this summer when it was uh, Nightwish uh, supporting Iron Maiden, well, they were on before Iron Maiden. And in fact, all the bands that day were just saying, are you guys ready to see Steve Harris and his legendary troupe? <laughs> they were saying that. It said yeah, Steve yeah. Harris legendary troop, Steve and the boys, you know. It, it It just seems like you could just write next to each to next to every song, Steve Harris featuring Iron Maiden <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I
0: think it's like uh, and, and I mean if you look through like the sort of the writing credits on this album, Steve Harris wrote like ninety nine percent of the yeah. lyrics. he's involved in every single song. I think Clive gets involved writing one of them, mm. and um Adrian Smith wrote quite a few of those. actually, no, I tell a lie. um Harris didn't write one of the songs on this album. Uh, gangland, which is probably the note like the most he doesn't no- like it. <laughs> <laughs> it is probably the most noticeable descent from the kind of uh, stat like the the Iron Maiden style on this album. And yeah, that's written by Clive and uh, Adrian Smith. Mm. Hence, why it probably sounds more like a song by Adrian Smith's previous band rather than <laughs> rather than a straight Maiden song.
1: What I don't understand is why wasn't Bruce Dickinson allowed to write anything? Now I know he was in transition from Samson to Iron Maiden, but how how does that legally stop you from composing music? I I never understood that.
0: I I've never like delved into the reasoning like mm. on that front. I know like Bruce Dickinson was very much picked up as like a hired gun by um, yeah Maiden's management, but I don't. Mm. Maybe it was just like maybe this was just a clause of they, they wanted to sort of control him because he's quite a,
2: um, you know, fiery personality. Control right?
1: Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: <no>,
3: exactly. <laughs> <Good luck. laughs>
2: yeah, I suppose then we move on to 22 Acacia Avenue, which I didn't have on the original um, copy. I got, I got a digital copy a long time ago, and for some reason it wasn't on there. Hmm. So I only came across this later, you know, a couple of years afterwards. So what do you guys think about that song? Beautiful song, uh, the second part to the, um, to the Charlotte the
1: Harlot trilogy. Oh yeah, and yeah, yeah. Many people miss the hooks and mm. you as a third part. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's <clears throat> sad song, but with a happy twist at the end. Um, uh, it's I think this is all Adrian Smith, if I'm not mistaken.
0: I will just just and check that. I can never remember who and wrote mm-hmm. what was with Maiden.
1: Yeah. And it's it's beautiful. Like from the intro all the way to to the end, the lyrics, the storyline, the solo, uh, the solos its just such a memorable song, such a strong song, emotional song. Uh, and I think it's it's in a perfect position just before Number of the Beast and after The Prisoner, which is not something I can say for Gangland, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I mean, I I think you've said all needs to be said on Twenty Two Orchard Avenue. It is just a very like much like Children of the Damned, really memorable, really good mm. piece in this album that some, like, somewhat gets, forget- gets forgotten behind the three obvious live staples of this yeah, album, yep. which we'll come to now. So um, we have the, the classic Revelations intro uh, that everyone knows word for word, I imagine, by now, <laughs> which uh read by the actor Barry Clayton, who uh, made one we're fans of and managed to get involved just to, like, well, and he does an epic job of reading that oh, bit. Yeah. It's extremely memorable. This track, I think, is the song on this album, uh, most people are probably slightly bored to death of it, like, it is played a lot, but it is such a good showcase of Steve Harris's bass playing, like, yes. the way he drives that, like, sort of middle uh, instrumental section is incredible, like, the, the what the rhythm section do- is doing there is so, kind of, like, actually quite progressive and, like, quite weird and out there, but... It is just amazing. And Bruce's vocals on mm, this are mm, that yes. that first scream he does it's, on it. It's incredible.
2: <laughs> Certainly with this and then Run to the Hills, the next song as well, they do sort of get a bit ruined because they're played so often. But I mean, there's a reason they're played so often. Mm. They are fantastically written songs and really, really, really catchy, really great for a live performance as well. And really, as we were saying, showcase the talents of mm. the entire band. It's, it's just a shame that you sort of get played to death on these songs.
1: I think it also shows the the best that Dave Murray and Adrian Smith had to offer at the time mm. when it comes to uh, to writing their solos. And you can always with Iron Maiden; it's very very easy to tell who has been writing which solo because they're so particular and and it's so uh, it's like a thumbprint. The solos mm. of the guitarist. is like a thumbprint. You know exactly who's playing what part. And it's uh, of uh, the Iron Maiden solos. This one, along with "Dance of Death," are my favorite solos. And yeah, it's it's just a it's a fantastic crowd pleaser mm, mm. and uh they were playing on the whole satanic thing to mm. at the time for uh for let's let's call it business because uh at the time it was easy to shock people now yeah, we can't say yeah, the same, yeah. we can't say the same yeah. nowadays it's uh, it's too difficult to shock people but yeah when you shock people you appeal to the kids to the rebellious generation and they buy your album and they uh, they remember your song and
0: yeah it's, think- it's successful I think now is a good point as well to bring up. Like this has to be one of my favorite maiden covers. Like it's oh, completely ridiculous. It is a, um, a picture of the devil in like a hellscape, but <laughs> controlling a little puppet of Eddie being <laughs> controlled by a giant Eddie himself <laughs> as a puppet. Yeah. Which yeah, as the rest is saying, this so is playing into the kind of like it is clearly trying to big up the kind of satanic panic that yeah. was around these. These bands in the early '80s. There's another album we'll cover later. Very much plays into the same mm. this same theme. But yeah, <laughs> obviously not a very satanic band. I mean, if you look at the lyrics to "Number of the Beast," it's. Um essentially putting the kind of satanic cults as the bad guys, Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: And, and even the rest of the album has no satanic uh, feel
0: whatsoever. It's no. just the mm. fact
1: that this one called, uh, this one song is called Number of the Beast and it's got the number
0: 666 six, six in it,
3: that's
0: all. <laughs> <laughs> now, the next song on the album is a song that I can no longer actually interpret on hearing. I've heard so many times, I find it impossible to actually engage with on any <laughs> level. Like I'm just automatically so bored by it. But this is not to say it's bad, it's just, <laughs> I think it quite possibly is up there as the metal song I've heard the most, like, especially unwillingly.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think I would agree, Run to the Hills is just that song that you can play and every person who's into metal or has even listened to Iron maiden knows the song, yeah. so everyone can get into it straight away. First
1: time made ever song uh, I've ever heard. Uh, Run to the hills. Oh. Uh, instantly captivated by the drums. Mm, Extremely yeah. recognisable, memorable. You just know that there's good times ahead when you hear that beat coming. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you guys might say.
0: <laughs> oh no no! I, <laughs> I, I, I must clarify. Live, still really enjoy it. Yes. it's just the, this yeah, particular yeah. studio version. I can't.
1: Obviously, just joking. It's just, it just. Um, also, a very clear demonstration of um, the the very. Uh, definitive Maiden Gallop
3: mm. Mm. Um,
1: I, I can't remember right off the top of my head if you hear it that much over the um, uh, the rest of the album but yeah the run to the hills is very clear Gallop that is, has become a signature of Iron Maiden which you hear so so much in the, especially in the next couple of albums yeah yeah
0: the next two especially that like this really is the kind of template going forward mm. if it can if they can be ascribed to template I guess yeah Okay, so, yeah, we don't need to talk about Run to the Hills in any real detail. <laughs> Everyone knows Run to the yeah, Hills anyways. <laughs> so next is the other contentious song on the album. We say the one not written by uh, Steve Harris. This is Gangland. And personally, I would say probably the worst track on the album. Yeah,
1: I would agree. It's, it's peculiar. It's not that it's a bad song. It's just it doesn't belong on Number of the Beast, I don't think. In fact, I don't think it belongs in any Iron Maiden album, it's just maybe, yeah. maybe like a B side or something. But It
0: doesn't feel like a Maiden song. Like no. more for any of the weird twists and turns they've taken in their career, this is one of the songs that most stands out as just not sounding like them at all.
2: Yeah. Yeah I would agree. Yeah, so I mean, I, I do agree. I do like the song though. Um
0: I like it as well.
2: P- particularly the drums on this song. It's a really nice sort of triplet feels on this that I really liked. Um but yeah, no, I agree that it just feels a little out of place on this album.
0: Uh, the next song, then, is Total Eclipse, which uh, I discovered earlier, I don't think was on the original version it of this wasn't. album. No.
1: no, it wasn't, because the original um, version of the album was the, the classic 8-track. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So they they didn't have the the space to put that. So after they, they made, I think, the first edition of their CD, they added on Total Eclipse, which uh, until then was, uh, I think, one of the
0: B-sides. Mm. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um yeah, again, this is another just, like, super melodic Maiden track. Got very long instrumental build-up.
2: I mean, where do you stand on this one, Rob? I really like this one as well. I quite like that it goes to the sort of darker themes that you see on songs like Hallow Be Thy Name and Children of the Damned, particularly as it builds up from the beginning. Um, And I feel the lyrics work really well with uh, Bruce's vocals on this. Sort of the the cry of fear from our children. He can do that in such a convincing way. I really like this. And I I like Maiden showing that little bit of a darker side. But at the same time, they never never sound like a really aggressive death metal band. But they just have that little hint of darkness in it. I think Mm. that song's a good example of this. Definitely a somber song. And the lyrics work wonders with
1: it. And there's this part about Bruce's vocals... um, Lyrics. It's uh, they've gone are the days when man looked down. They've taken away sacred crown. Mm. Beautiful lyrics and masterfully executed, and it just brings it all together. The darkness and the the emotion of the song brings it all together by the I think by those two lines, mm. and it's it's a great song, honestly. I don't understand why Gangland won over Total Eclipse to go on the original A track.
0: Yeah, or yeah. Invaders for that matter. I'd, I'd say both are uh, us. <laughs>
1: Invaders is just fine, thank you.
0: <laughs> Bruce agrees <laughs> with me, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, the other like thing I was going to say because I remember seeing this very recently. Um, There's a great video online where someone's just isolated Bruce's vocal track from, I think, Run to the Hills. Mm. And you need to hear this by itself, because Bruce is obviously a brilliant vocalist. But hearing his voice in isolation is incredible. Like, Mm. it is. It can't be understated just what the force this guy is as a metal frontman. Like, Iron Maiden would not be the band they were without him. He is such a crucial element. Yes, definitely which brings us to the final track of the album and possibly my favorite ever uh, Iron Maiden song. This is the epic Hallow Be Thy Name. Um where it tells the tale of a man waiting for his time at the gallows and dealing with the the prospect of death and it is it is truly an epic. This is mm-hmm. this is starting that kind of thing where Maiden tend to have one of these on every album since like the great like just hugely building, long song that goes for a lot of movement and just moves the epicness over anything else, like, seeing Fear of the Dark or Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Mm-hmm. Like, like these songs are near cinematic. Like, the intro to Hallow Be Thy Name could be out of a film score, the kind of, yeah, yeah. the tolling bell with this very simple guitar work and that kind of... Yeah, like, whatever tone it is they're using there, they don't use anywhere else.
2: This is truly their sort of masterful storytelling at its best, really. Mm. You really, you feel all the emotions because the lead guitar playing is so good. Um, you know, just from the subtle bits at the beginning through to the really melodic leads and fantastic riffs towards the end really conveys the emotion. And as we are saying, Bruce's vocals are just second to none, really, in this kind of style. It just shows also their
1: the art of, of bringing emotions, music and storyline together. In the same song and creating uh, a tour de force. And you, uh, something interesting about the lyrics is that they they show this man going through the motions of grief. So mm, he is mm. in the beginning he doesn't feel anything. Then he's afraid. Then he's sad. Then he's furious. And then he just accepts his fate. That's it. Mm. And it's such a dark song, such a melodic song. Uh, definitely one of the Iron Maiden, one of the best Iron Maiden songs ever written. And I think it was my favourite song for about three years straight. (laughs) I I, I can imagine.
0: (laughs) Have any of you ever managed to catch this particular one live? Yes. (laughs) Because, yeah, I saw this. I've only seen Iron Maiden once on the slightly disappointing Matter of Life and Death tour. (laughs) Only disappointing in that they played the whole of Matter of Life and Death, which is not a bad Maiden Mm -hmm. album, but... Certainly, the last few tracks could have been switched out for more classics. Yeah. But this song and "Fear of the Dark" were in that set, and mm. there is not much like it as a live experience, like yeah. seeing those kind of those kind of tracks live. I mean, so is there anything else you particularly want to add on the the subject of Iron Maiden's third album? Um, I think we've covered everything. Uh, I think I think we're pretty yeah, much uh, there. Yeah. So, pretty um, So, because we didn't want to go for the most obvious track of all the players set out, we. Uh, We're going to leave you with Children of the Dam. so the second album we're covering today nowhere near on the scale of uh, classic as uh, Number of the Beast but still I think a really interesting and worthwhile like metal album to check out this is the fourth album by the Swedish band Grand Magus uh, the fourth album's uh called Iron Will released in 2008 um, oh god like almost <laughs> well, more than 25 years after uh, Number yeah. of the Beast um, <laughs> it's released on Right Above Records um So Grand Magus are a kind of a band that sits somewhere between doom and then like classic new wave of British heavy metal sort of sound. Uh, They're a three piece made up of JB, who's guitar and vocals, uh, Fox Skinner on bass and Seb on drums. Seb is later replaced by Spiritual Beggars drummer and JB was briefly fronting Spiritual Mm. Beggars as well, who we covered a few episodes back.
2: But yeah, Grand Magus have been a bit of a weird one because their first album started off with like this really sort of stoner rock style thing with JB putting on this American accent and singing almost Clutch like, which I really liked. But by but by this point, they've changed quite a lot and are writing a lot of songs that you know feel like classic heavy metal about swords and fighting and um, that sort of thing. You know, traditional, even almost Man of War style at some points, particularly as they go on. And this album, I think, is probably the best moments of that, um, mm. singing about swords and sorcery and fighting and, and sort of things from Sweden and Scandinavia as well, sort of folklore. Yeah, because isn't um, the, all, the, the the intro track, like The All Strikes the Water,
0: which is, like to this day, one of their live staples mm. and one of the catchiest Scramegas songs ever. Yeah. Um, there's, I think, something about the Christians getting kicked out of Sweden or Norway. So... I
2: believe so, yeah. Yeah,
0: like, I can't remember the story of that well now, but... Yeah, so very much in the vein of Iron Maiden, the singer JB has a ludicrously powerful voice. Yeah, possibly unfair like of us having just played uh, Bruce Dickinson's <laughs> song, but try and forget that briefly. JB is absolutely brilliant in his own right, and this this band really do seem to be his vehicle more than anything. He writes like pretty much everything. He plays all the guitar parts, um, so he does all the all the solos again. The solos aren't super technical, they're not super flashy, but he has a real flair for writing a kind of understated but catchy solo.
2: Great melodies, well, they often, um, you'll see this on almost all Grandmakers albums, they'll often sort of reprise some of the melodies you've seen in the chorus or in other parts of the song. And, you know, this could be seen as, like, a cheap way of getting out, but he managed to do it in such a way that accents the song. Mm. And, you know, a lot of the guitar riffs are fairly simple, but they're really effective at what they do. And, you know, that's what writing a good song is about. So,
0: um, two of the albums this week, me and Rob suggested for Orestes, and this is one of them. I don't know, are you were you aware of Grand Magus before this point? Definitely aware of both Grand Magus and
1: Sirithungal. But uh, I didn't know much about them. So I think the biggest surprise for me was to learn that they were a three piece.
3: Mm. It
1: is it is almost inconceivable for me to see that such music, uh, that level of of music can come from a three piece. Even when I'm thinking of, when I think of, of a, a really complicated music coming out of a three piece, I'm thinking of Rush. Mm.
3: And <laughs>
1: yeah, but it, this is on a similar level. It just sounds like there's five or six or seven people playing at, mm. that, uh, at points, but um, the songs are really catchy. Like, yeah, I, I've told you already, uh, Like the Oil Strikes the Water is, I think it has to be my favourite <laughs> from this album because it's just, it's stuck in my brain for about three weeks now. Yeah. And I love it. I, I think a lot of people <laughs> would agree with that.
0: Mm.
1: And it's great, but um, I think it's obvious that the focus of the band is uh, the singing mm-hmm. more than the solos or the drums or the or anything. It's, uh, the strong point is definitely the singer's voice.
0: Yeah, so, like, a a real thing to, like, it's actually a good comparison to Iron Maiden with Grand Magus, like, or sort of counterpoint even, is Grand Magus go for incredibly slow riffing, like, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of this is exactly that to build around JB's voice, so you you get these kind of, they're quite catchy and quite groovy riffs, but they never, you never get the drummer going into, like, proper, like, fast double-kick territory. Mm -hmm. It's always quite withdrawn and gives the vocals, like, a lot of room to breathe. And... Actually, a vibe that comes off some of the heavier moments this album I get is more in the vein of like early mass where you get yeah, a huge amount, yeah, a huge amount of the power of the song is by having this soaring vocal melody over these quite heavy down-tuned, but like still kind of classic heavy metal riffs. It's just classic heavy metal riffs slowed down a little played on slightly down-tuned guitars. Yeah,
2: particularly if you look at um, sort of the middle section of Iron Will and The Shadow Nose, songs like that, which, you know, are actually really heavy, but have these soaring epic vocals over the top of them you really can feel that sort of candle beginning of Doom influence there. And part of that, I guess, goes back to when they had a lot of Stoner songs, which sort of emerged at the same time as Doom. Mm. But they shift really nicely between some really sort of heavy moments with the soaring vocals and these really epic um, sort of silver into steel, like the All Strikes the Water moments of just incredible vocals over slow riffs to just give you this huge sense of power.
0: So I'd say this is possibly for me the high point of Grand Magus' um discography. This is before they sort of descend into um more kind of o war worship territory mm-hmm. in their last two or so albums where they move away from something quite so heavy and go in more in for the powerful chorus rather than the kind of like really tight, like hef- hefty riffing, um like yeah, the more candle mass feel they have here.
2: Um and here they still feel like um the tone still feels a bit sort of dirty as well and a bit nasty. Uh, they've got a really bass-driven tone. And often it's like tricky to work out if you try to play a grand Magus riff. Like, it won't sound right until you've got a bass right next to you, which is playing you know you know that part as well. And they're all fairly understated and a bit slowed down in a way. But when they sort of lock in together, they create this sound which on this and I think Wolf's Return beforehand, like they've just never sounded as good as when they have the tone here. And that's not to say the later albums are bad. Because later albums are really catchy and really great as well. This is just sort of my favourite period. Yeah, as the rest of were saying earlier, though the kind of the fact this comes out of a free piece is
0: kind of mind blowing, especially if you ever get a chance to catch them live, because mm. they don't seem to lose anything. Now, <laughs> obviously, with this album, there's a clear overdub of like one guitar throughout. You don't have the kind of the thing we'll see with uh, the next album we cover, Sir of where when the guitar goes into a solo, the the bass just comes through yeah. underneath. Mm. With this, there's a like, obvious overdubbing, but that's. I mean, that's just part of being a modern album. I think pretty much everyone records that way now. Um, Yeah, I think another important thing to mention is the kind of... There is a lot of changes of pace on this album. So Mm. although Overly a quite slow album, there's quite a lot of like a dynamic range. So a lot of these songs have these very gentle sort of acoustic guitar intros and then come in with the heavy chords and normally JB just screaming, yeah! (laughs) Which he can do so well.
2: It's
1: interesting that it's... It's still. I would still class it as heavy metal. Now, the first, the mm. first time um, I've listened to it, I was thinking maybe sort of touching into Viking waters, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> but but it's still a classic heavy metal album. It's not. It, uh, I don't think it borders with any other. It's just classic heavy metal. And mm, as yeah. such, it's mm. it's one of the heavier types. Like you said, it's the the accompanying bass line is always mm. brings things
0: down mm. a lot
1: into that heavy, like grinding, powerful.
0: Slow riff yeah, I think that's a really good summation of mm-hmm. it like the, the other thing I really like about this album, which I think does set it apart slightly from a lot of the similar kind of classic heavy metal genre is I think the lyric writing on this is spectacular, yeah. and yeah. so in a theme, it feels very like because what does in a lot of classic heavy metal at times is slightly awkward delivery of some lines or slightly awkward phrasing because the vocals are so on show. If you don't nail the lyrics, you you will really wreck the sound to some extent. Yeah. There isn't a single line that feels out of place in this album. Yeah. Everything is like epic and powerful.
2: It's similar to the Iron Maiden. It's written such a way, um, with the vocalist fully in mind, in a way that that's exactly how you would want that to be delivered. So there's no wasted words or syllables or anything. And um, JB has some amazing vibrato as well, which is really on show <laughs> here. And particularly if you catch him live, it's quite something.
0: Yeah, I have. <laughs> I, I almost got in trouble walking around as to listening to this earlier, where I had the overwhelming urge to sing along with uh, I Am the North, the final track, which has an amazingly catchy chorus. And yeah, you know, when you have one of those moods where you just uh, you're like, you feel you want to sing, it's like, I probably shouldn't do that in the supermarket.
1: <laughs> well, to come back to one of your earlier points about Iron Maiden, at least you weren't singing along to Invaders.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so. Um, I think for for this set, we we thought we'd give like kind of the best introduction to Grand Magus. We go for uh, the previous mentioned track, like the All Strikes the Water. This is just a super catchy song. It has kind of a really awesome intro to the album with mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Uh, gentle acoustic guitar over the sound of the waves, and then just comes in so with heavy, real power, yeah. And you get all the Grand Magus staples in this. It's got heavy, slow but heavy riffs, super catchy chorus, soaring vocals. Melodic solo, really clear bass sound. I think it's just... Mm. This is just the perfect kind of classic heavy metal track.
3: Definitely.
2: So the next album we'll be looking at is what I brought. And this is Frost and Fire by Sura Fungo, which was released in 1981 on Liquid Flame Records, which, as Phil was just pointing out, is just after Killers. So this is this is an old album. And Sura Fungo are one of those bands which I got into quite early and I really like, but I can fully understand if someone says it's not really their thing. Um, they do a sort of weird new wave of British heavy metal, classic heavy metal type thing, but with a sort of slightly progressive, slightly doomy element to it. Uh, so, what did you guys think of this album? Well, I think the thing to note is to, uh, to note about Seraphim is
0: like they were around the same time as like the burgeoning new wave of British heavy metal scene. So they they started around the same time as bands like Angel Witch, Tigers of Pang Tang, um, obviously Iron Maiden. But they're not from the UK; they're from California in the mm-hmm. US, yeah. and they came out. There was no scene there. They were just. This band doing this weird thing by themselves, which in a pre-internet age is kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what were your feelings on the album, the rest is?
1: The fact that they, they were, like you said, an island in an ocean of different kinds of music, a heavy metal. I think we can call them icons because they are, they're a fantastic band. And it's a shame that they don't do much anymore. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. <laughs> mm. But like you said, the fact that they were alone and doing this thing shows a, immense strength. And the fact that they, they are playing heavy metal, but yet kept that kind of teenage nerdiness to them. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> which I, which I think is commendable. Is commendable because can you imagine the level of ridicule they, they would be put through? Like mm. playing a different type of music, the lyrics, the, even the name that they chose for themselves. And in fact, I was reading up on some... Uh, uh, some of their, um, their experiences were mostly, the, the biggest problem they had as a band were people not remembering their name or pronouncing it <laughs> yeah, wrong. Or, in this, fact, yeah. they're pronouncing it wrong themselves. Yes, well, yes. It's, it's, not... it's supposed to be Kiruthungal, but they pronounce it
2: Siruthungal. <laughs> the, the funniest thing I remember saying was one person believed they were called Sarah's uncle. Sarah's uncle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> which, which became a sort of runny joke for them. But I'll tell you what I loved about this album is the energy.
1: Mm. It is so fast, so happy at points, and just uh, if Grand Magus made me clutch my broadsword, <laughs> these guys made me plunder the virgin lands and any other sexual <laughs> innuendo- sexual endeavors in- involving Vikings. It's so it just it just had me jumping up and down. It is mm. brilliant. It's fast paced. It's memorable, and I quite like the voice. And what I thought, what I thought about the voice, it sounds like Credence Clearwater Revival on steroids. <laughs>
0: Okay, so so this is or like... speed rather not stones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so, so brings up the, this is the defining thing and probably the make or break thing for anyone with this band. Tim Baker's vocals are
2: unique to say the least. Like he's the, the shrieking goblin of metal. <laughs> I I really like his vocals, but they, but they are something that takes getting into. If you listen to. Um, say Judas Priest or Ryan Maiden, you will have these occasional screams, and the screams are always fantastic. Um, Tim Baker mostly screams, and his screams are uh, uh, like very different to most vocals that I know. And there are moments where he sings on a little fire, edge of the knife, and um, what does it take? There are bits of sort of more normal yeah, singing yeah. as well, but most of it is this sort of strange shrieking type vocal that he does, which I love, and it really <laughs> makes Fungal sound very different to all the other bands but I could totally understand if someone didn't get it. I I
0: think the thing to remember like with of Ungula is the best approach from like the album perspective and this is we're covering Frost and Fire their very first album when you first hear them on the the title track Frost and Fire you might be put off but stick with it because <laughs> as you go through the album you'll settle into them and I found myself quite quickly loving them after initially kind of having that reaction of Oh, wow, that's that's pretty...
2: <laughs> it's quite full-on, isn't it? Pretty out yeah. there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that they have this, as we were saying, we have this whole fantasy sort of teenage nerd thing running through the whole thing from the cover. The back of the album's got a pterodactyl with devil horns on well, it. Well, the um, the
0: cover of the album is from one of those old like choose-your-own-adventure mm, mm, books. Like I think all their album covers they, are the they, same They artist. have the same
2: hero on the front of this and King of the Dead afterwards. I was going to say King of the Dead is the album after this which is also really worth checking out and it's potentially arguably the better album but I feel that Frost and Fire doesn't get quite as much love and that's why I brought it here today. It was, um, if you look on Metal Archives you can see um, Robert Gavin, the drummer, talks about the experiences recording the albums and what he thinks of them Mm. and he talks about on this one how they were trying to appear a bit more commercial in this time trying to sort of make it big and be one of the bands from California doing it whereas everyone else was in different parts of the world. Um, And Sira Van have never really been commercial and they they do try but they're just a little bit too weird um, they have too many drum beats that are just a bit odd and too many riffs that are a bit off and this really great bass sound which you don't hear in most commercially successful bands bar, uh, bands like Maiden which we've discussed before uh, but the, the song structures, in some cases looks like it's trying to be normal but isn't really because of the peculiar way in which they write songs which I really liked
0: so, um, what should we note today? Like, Rob's brought up the um, like the amazingly clear and very involved bass playing of this album. Like, so the lineup is: we have Jerry Fogle on guitars, um, Robert Garvin on drums, Tim Baker vocals, and then Greg, Greg Lindstrom, who's credited with guitars, keyboard, bass, ebo, and vocals. <laughs> so, yeah, a Basically fairly everything. Yeah, a fairly involved <laughs> member of the band. But his bass sound on this album, and I think the way the album's mixed and recorded really lends to this, where we just have one guitar track and one bass track throughout. And the bass is being played like a near lead instrument mm, on this. Mm. The amount of variety of things he's trying to play, like the, the way he's just all over the place and always quite interesting. Like he really does take a very lead position until you get into the kind of um Tim uh, not Tim Baker, sorry, the Jerry Fogle lead sections, which are incredibly Dave Murray influenced, I yeah, would say. Yeah. You have these super melodic, super well written leads that are just completely memorable. They have the Iron Maiden thing of, you could imagine an, an audience humming along with that solo. Mm, so mm. like the intro to I'm Alive is very... Oh, yeah, that's
2: definitely a fantastic solo. Yeah. But, um, and as we were saying earlier, with the Grand Magus you have uh, the overdub guitar in the background. In this you don't. When the guitar comes in for a solo, the bass then has to hold everything together with the drums. And it does so phenomenally just because the bass sound and the volume and the way it's mixed is so nicely done. And even during sort of the main riffs, the bass is a fundamental part of that. And will come up, as we were saying, in parts of the lead of the main riff, um, in, all sort, in pretty much every song on this. Um, bar the strange one at the end called Maybe That's Why, which is a long sort of mournful guitar piece, about six minutes long, which does actually have an entire set of lyrics. Um, and it was meant to have these lyrics. But it, for some reason, it just never had them. It doesn't have any vocals on it whatsoever. It's just guitars, and it's there. But in the lyric book, they've got all these lyrics to it, so it's a bit of a mystery. But I really like it. It's a nice closer for the album.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that they they've got these fantastic uh, riffs, fantastic drums, vocals, and everything. But there's always something that's a little bit off, mm-hmm. and that's what makes them not so commercially viable as say Metallica or Iron Maiden. But for us, that we, you know, that's all we listen to is heavy metal. It's something new and refreshing. Mm. But at the time, especially since all the action was happening in Britain and Central Europe, it was uh, it was difficult
0: for them to to come up as a as a new, successful, talented band. Because I think these guys have now sort of found their niche where they have a kind of respect, like a group of fans who really respect them and credit them with quite a lot. But mm. I think at the time these were not much of a known entity. I mean. Um, yeah, we should probably get onto uh, the kind of the eventual career of them. So this is the first album before they recorded. Straight after this album, interestingly, Greg Lindstrom leaves the band to be replaced by another equally
2: brilliant bass player. As actually, Greg Lindstrom wrote all the songs on this album. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> which which might explain the the great sort of. Uh, well, not, not great, but like a significant change in direction here between mm. this and the next album, King of the Dead, which I would say is actually my favourite, but I think that is like going with the most generic. <laughs> but yeah, it, uh, like this kind of change in direction, and eventually after four albums, they sort of broke up and were largely forgotten.
2: Yeah, so there was a lot of um, problems during the recording of the last album, um, Paradise Lost, which I think has some incredible moments. But um, if you look at Robert Gavin, the drummer's sort of review of it on Metal Archives, uh, it seems like they had a really tough time recording this with a bunch of new members coming in and not having all the songs ready. And it's definitely worth checking out, but they had some trouble with that. But um, fortunately, I found out this morning, actually, (laughs) that Syrophungal have reunited. They played a reunion show on October the 8th, last month, um, in California, and have now announced they're doing another gig in Greece... And so hopefully, we'll get to see him over here in the UK, elsewhere in the world. That'd be fantastic. Um, Tim Baker's on vocals, Rob Gavin's still on drums. Um, Greg Lindstrom is back, but he's playing guitar. They've got a new bass player, and they've got um, one of the guitarists from the Paradise Lost era, which is the fourth album.
0: Yes, sadly, Jerry Fogle won't be joining him, because he passed away in 1998. Mm-hmm. Which uh, We didn't notice this when we chose the albums, but accidentally became a theme of the show of Almost every album has someone who's recently died in the lineup, Mm. which yeah, kind of a somber note. Which yeah, we'll get to it later. Seems to be 2016, especially wasn't a good year for that. Yeah,
2: Yeah. but yeah, it's 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 a very strange album, um, but I think definitely a great one and a really interesting take on new wave British heavy metal from a completely different area of the world.
0: Yeah. So um, the song we went to, I decided to play from this album is "I Am Alive," uh, track two from the album really with this like it's like worth remembering when listening to it just when this was in time compare this to other albums at the time and by comparison i think this really holds up and mm. really should be lauded as up there with those kind of classic early albums
2: Next album we are talking about is Holy Diver by Dio from 1983. So a similar sort of time to Syrophungal and Early Maiden, uh, released on Mercury Records. And this is sort of Dio's solo group that he formed. It was formed by Vinny Appice, the drummer of um, Black Sabbath with Dio, and Dio after they'd left Black Sabbath. And I think this is, I mean, I would say this is the strongest of the sort of Dio solo albums. And it really brings his... Again, as with a lot of these bands, incredible vocal presence, along with some really impressive, fast, aggressive guitar riffing. Um, Very cheesy in places, definitely, but a real classic heavy metal feel, which pulls this whole album together.
0: Uh, Do you want to go for it, I was
2: going to say that Dio's Dio's
1: voice is definitely unique, whereas you can compare most other singers' screams and everything to other singers' screams or anything dio is just by himself he's his own category the sheer power of that man's voice mm-hmm. and it's, it's a bit ironic considering his size yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um he was always uh, his theme like many of the of the albums of the heavy metal al- albums of the era was is all about magic and uh, you know fantasy that kind of thing but it just works it's cheesy but it really works um, there's a few bands like Metallica who wanted to actively stay away from that to be different because they, well, you know, they didn't like it. Fair enough and all that, mm-hmm. but it's it's fine. It's good. It works. Uh, people love it. People enjoy it. But yeah, this is definitely Dio's best solo album. And uh, it's interesting because I, I think I would say this lineup. I, w- I would even call it a borderline supergroup
3: mm.
1: because it brings together so many talents from many other big bands. And when he toured this. Um, uh, I've got a, a DVD of Holy Diver Live. I think it was an anniversary tour or something. Mm. It was with, um, can't remember if it was Vinnie Appice or Cozy Powell on drums, but the, the guitarist was Doug Aldrich from White Snake. He nailed oh, yeah. every yeah. single every single <laughs> solo. It was absolutely fantastic. And Dio seems to do this. He seemed to do uh, a lot of supergroups and uh, dabble here and there.
0: But oh well, yeah, because Black Sabbath were basically a supergroup by the time mm, he was yeah. in it. It's yeah. strange when we're
2: talking about sort of the guitarist, uh, Vivian Campbell, the uh, main guitar player here. I saw him not that long ago, a few years ago, with um, the sort of n- what is now Thin Lizzy, um, oh. with Scott Gorham and uh, original drummer and the new guys that they've got in to do Thin Lizzy, and that was one of the main things I was going for. Was I, I do like Thin Lizzy, and it was a really great show. but I was thinking, oh, that's the guy who played on Holy Diver. <laughs> and yeah, <now> that's something <laughs> yeah. to see because again, the guitar playing on this album is incredible. So stylistically, I'd say this album. Although regularly like probably listened
0: to by the same people and probably lumped into a similar category, I'd say musically it's completely different from the likes of Iron Maiden and the the British heavy metal scene. Like this is quite clearly a very um, separate style. Idea like, mm-hmm. was doing something quite different here. Like the way the riffing is uh, put together is very different. I don't know how you would quite explain what the riff style on this album is. I think I'd call it
1: sort of something between. Classic rock and and hard rock. Mm. I don't think I would actually call it heavy metal, the type of riffing, and uh, especially with the effects, okay, it's got a bit of distortion, that kind of thing. But nothing heavy, grinding, like we heard on Grand Magus, no, nothing as sombre as, somber as mm. uh, Hallowed Be Thy Name. It's just, uh, on some songs, quite fast-paced, but it's got that really clean, crisp
0: sound. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I guess this, this might just be a metal album by virtue of, say, like the intro track "Stand Up and Shout." It's as you say, it's just the speed of the guitar and the speed yeah. of the yeah. fast, like palm-muted uh, riffing. Not not into the realm of fresh chugging, but like, yeah, it is very very quick guitaring and the like the heavy palm muting of it. Just makes it sound that bit heavier and than a lot of hard rock would have. It's it's
2: got those characteristic Vinnie Appice, like the heaviest drum hits you can possibly imagine. It was the same thing with Sabbath. Like he doesn't he he doesn't hit the drums an enormous amount, but when he hits them, you can sure feel it. <laughs> and these amazingly powerful Dio vocals as well just make it sound bigger than perhaps it is. I think much in the vein of Grand like, Megas we were talking about earlier, this
0: album is built around Dio's, Dio's vocals. Yes, definitely. And I, I've read, and I don't know how true this is, that Dio wrote most of this. So I don't know if he was writing guitar parts for it. I don't know if Dio could even play guitar. He is he credited, he is credited yeah. as playing keyboards on the album. So there's a good chance that this is heavily constructed by Dio, which is impressive, because riffs like the aforementioned Stand Up and Shout or like The Chorus of the Gypsy... Quite hard to play pieces. No, mm. oh,
1: definitely. Yeah, he used to play the bass in his old band uh, oh, yeah. before Black Sabbath and everything. Um, Elf, I think it was mm. Elf. Yeah, yeah that was, Elf. Yeah. He used to play the bass, so I don't think it would be too far to say he was playing mm. the guitar. mean, most of most of these legends play. Uh, uh, other instruments i mean for example bruce dickinson plays a bit of the drums i know he's a, an above average guitar player yeah yeah mm. but then again that's bruce dickinson he can do bloody everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah dio is never able to fly playing this is uh... <laughs> you probably could never see above the uh, <laughs> steering wheel or joystick players.
2: But you, you have a bit of um, sort of variation in dio's vocals as well you have all the standard really powerful bits but um and once as well don't talk to strangers you hear dio doing some really sort of much higher vocals mm. than you normally hear which is really great, because he can do them fantastically as well. There seems to be almost no sort of style of vocals bar screaming that seems to be off Dio's limits. Exactly. So uh, I was listening to a bit of Sabaton the other day, and I was thinking,
1: yeah, his voice is great, it's brilliant for Sabaton, it's perfect, but he probably doesn't have a big range. Whereas, especially in Don't Talk to Strangers, you see that massive range, which I think mm-hmm. is just like acting. You have actors who only play one role, and they're good at it, that's fine, but it's just that one role. That's not, uh, you know, you're good at that one role, but you're not great as an actor. To be a good actor, to be a good singer, you have to have a big range. And Dio demonstrates his beautiful, perfect singing voice in this song, I
0: believe, more than any other song. Yeah, yeah, I I would say this is... Don't Talk Strangers is quite possibly a standout from the album. That tossed up with maybe the title track, Holy Diver, which was mm. released as a single with a fairly laughable video of deer walking around the <laughs> courtyard with a sword, <laughs> which is definitely worth watching. Um, whereas Holy Diver more goes in for the the classic kind of heavy metal structure of really huge chorus, like mm. obviously break in the middle. Uh, Don't Talk Strangers is far more of a kind of varied songs starting from like a kind of extremely melodic intro that then builds into quite a heavy kind of chuggy mm-hmm. riff mm-hmm. and then like probably my favorite solo on the album as well like yeah yes. uh, yeah Vinny really uh sorry vinnie um uh, vivian. vivian vivian really goes for it in this solo it is it's one of those amazing kind of it's really shreddy but still super melodic mm-hmm.
2: yeah mm-hmm. And, it's, and it seems almost an impossible task particularly with this album to cover Dio I've heard a lot of bands try to cover a lot of Dio songs and it's we're thinking m- of the same thing of course <laughs> it's, it's pretty much never worked are you going to talk about Opera. Uh, no, I was going no, to no. go for of Killswitch. Ah, yes. <laughs> that, 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 that would great. be the case in point. Is if, if you go to any rock or metal club or anything like that, you will hear the Kill Switch Engage version of Holy Diver, which that's fine if you like it. It's not abysmal, but it's nothing on the original. You just can't. And... There is no copying or covering deal. It's impossible. That's what I was saying
1: earlier about him being so damn unique. And it's mm. such a shame. He passed away.
0: Yeah, but yeah, yeah, that's what it, happens.
1: Uh, another person uh, on the theme of tonight, then.
0: Yeah, well, this album has two, and because unfortunately, Jimmy Bain died earlier this year. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, with so many deaths in 2016, mm. a lot of the kind of Dio's bass player unfortunately doesn't rank up with Motorhead's bass player on the yeah, kind of yeah. yeah list of people <laughs> getting noticed. But yeah, like it is a tragedy we lost Dio, but. My God, did he leave a good back catalogue in his way? Like definitely. first two uh, Rainbow albums, yeah, then yeah. the two Sabbath albums before this. Yep. Actually, an interesting comparison between this and the two previous Sabbath albums. This has a far more muddy kind of production value in those because yeah. those two albums are very, yeah. very clean, very clear. This is. Far less polished than a lot of albums around
2: this time. Yeah, it it's it's sort of sort of has the feel of like a band in a garage who are incredibly good, but it as you're saying just has a little bit of mud in the mixture, which sort of makes it feel like it's live or something or you're witnessing it. I'm not saying those South albums are bad. The Dio Sabafius are absolutely fantastic mm-hmm. as well, but it lends this album a bit of character of its own. It sounds a lot older than it is.
0: Yes, mm, yes. Mm. It, it, I could believe this was released in the 70s. Mm. I could believe mm. this was released at the same time as, say, the first Rainbow album. Like, yeah. But, and I, I don't know that that's necessarily a criticism, but I still think it's doing enough new, and there's a lot that, well, obviously by virtue of the myriad of covers of songs in this album you've probably mm. heard at some point in time, it clearly inspired a lot of people. Um I think it'd be remiss of us not to cover one particularly interesting moment towards the end of the album. We have the, um, yeah, it's slightly divisive. Rainbow in the dark.
1: <laughs> there is nothing wrong with Rainbow in the Dark. There is nothing wrong with Invaders. <laughs> I, I think I'm in the same camp. Actually, <laughs> these,
2: these are I'm... the two points to take from tonight's episode. So, <laughs> <laughs> first major disagreement on the podcast. But um, no, I, I think Rainbow. Oh, no, the no, dark I, is... I, I, am, I am with you. I love Rainbow
0: in the Dark, but. Um, so <laughs> Rainbow Dark's departure from the rest of the album is it's intro by some, like, extremely cheesy keyboards yeah, doing, yeah. kind of trying to sound, I think, like a kind of violin passage or something. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, and Dio himself has said, when they were recording this song, he really wasn't sure about it. <laughs> he was not sure if this was going to work. He loves the end result, and it's since become like a kind of... Live Dio classic, but...
1: Strangely enough, it's quite a popular song. Mm. Rainbow in the Dark. Many people do know this. They're, obviously, everyone knows Rain, um, uh, Holy Diver. They know Stand Up and Shout. And quite a few people have heard Rainbow in the Dark. Mm. And it's one of the songs that springs up to mind when the, when I ask them about Dio. And I think that's partly because of those cheesy keyboards. Oh, yeah, they yeah. They are yeah. quite memorable.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah so uh, another thing I'd kind of like to cover about this is we have these extremely unique kind of lyric writing of Dio with this album. Dio's lyrics tend to centre around, like, he sort of sets them all in a kind of fantasy medieval universe because Dio's always said he was very fond of the ideas of, like, chivalry and heroes. And Mm. we we get to see loads of this in this album. But it's also mixed with Dio's kind of um, trademark nonsense poetry. Like we <laughs> there there is some very confusing lyrical phrasing on this album. Mm-hmm. I think my all-time favourite has to be in the song Holy Diver of you can see the tiger oh no ride the tiger you can see his stripes but, but you know, know he's,
2: he's clean. clean. Oh don't you, you know what, what I mean? I mean. <laughs> no I don't know what you mean Ronnie please explain. But but I... <laughs> but the fact that he says it with such conviction in that voice makes you think, I mean I don't know what he means, but it means something. Yeah. <laughs> And it and it, like, you know, there's definitely some moments where yeah, the lyrics probably could have been written better, but you know, everyone would still sing along to that because mm-hmm. it's so well delivered.
0: Oh yes, yes. Um like another interesting point in this album, and it, this very much ties it into Maiden with Number of the Beasts, is a similar album that would have caused a lot of outcry. Like the front cover of this album is a sort of demon-like creature clearly tossing a chained-up priest mm. into mm. into a kind of ocean or something. Like, a really powerful, striking image. Like yeah. It's a very good album cover. But I think this definitely would have played into people's fears at the time and yep. can probably be attributed for some of the success of this album because I can imagine, you saw this as a record shop as a 13-year-old. You'd have to buy this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, <laughs> the interesting side of it I've heard uh, from Dio, and I've always really loved this quote, is... He got criticised at the time for depicting a front cover of an album of a monster drowning a priest, and Dio said, "Yes, but what if the cover depicts a priest drowning a monster?" Which <laughs> <laughs> I always thought was, was kind of genius. <laughs> Can't argue with that logic.
2: Yeah, it's fantastic. So um, the song we were going to play from this one is one we've mentioned quite a lot for Dio's sort of range of vocals, and that would be "Don't Talk to Strangers."
4: Starlight Cause the words may come out
0: brings us to our final album we're covering today this one's probably the biggest departure but I do think there's still like elements in it that ties it back to this and also it's just an album we really wanted to cover at some point this is Megadeth's like undisputed classic Rust in Peace um, this is Megadeth's fourth album came out in 1990 on Capitol Records and interestingly this is the point in time where Megadeth solidified a lineup for actually quite a while which if you look at like kind of future and past catalogue, this is not a thing they'd done for a while. So we have the classic uh, central setup of Dave Mustaine, guitar and vocals, and Dave Elpherson on uh, bass and backing vocals. But at this point, we also had uh, Nick Menzer join the band, replacing Chuck Bella, who had recently left after. I think uh, Dave might have kicked the guitarist and drummer out of the lineup after So Far, So Good, So What? And then, and this is like the big thing building up to the album, this group of three pretty much had the album written, ready to go, but they needed a second lead guitar player for it. So they went on this massive quest to try and find someone who fit the Megadeth sound and had the requisite level of supreme ability. Mm. And after many, many auditions, they were getting sick of it, couldn't find anyone, but then eventually stumbled upon kind of a more classic rock guitarist in the form of Marty Friedman um, interesting story I recently discovered about Marty Friedman's audition with Megadeth was had another audition lined up a week later um, and it he enjoyed Megadeth so much he didn't go to the next audition. That audition was to be a touring guitarist for Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> I, that I didn't know about Marty Friedman. <laughs> I, I found that out yesterday. I, I don't know why that isn't more known. It was, that is a brilliant it,
2: fact. It, it sums up Marty Friedman quite well, weirdly, I think. It's a, you, know, it? you are so right on this. He is such
1: an interesting and uh, unique character. Mm. He is so... Uh, he's, he's so Eastern... Uh, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna talk a bit more about why I I use the word Eastern after this, but um, after Megadeth, after he quit uh, music for the most part, he settled down in Japan, and Mm -hmm. uh, I lately saw him walking around with his guitar, hosting a cooking show. There there is loads (laughs) of
0: clips on YouTube that are completely impenetrable unless you speak Japanese. Yeah. Of him on random like Japanese game shows and so on, where I I cannot make head nor tail of what's happening. It normally involves him. Talking for a while in a weird quiz sense, and then suddenly playing guitar and no real clear transition. But honestly,
1: if I was in Japan and I put the telly on and Marty Friedman is there, I would say, "Oh,
0: it's Marty Friedman," <laughs> and
1: it's not surprising. That's yeah, what I mean.
0: Yeah. So this lineup actually stayed together for the next few albums. Like this, this went all through to um, Risk. I think uh, Nick quit just before Risk, and then Marty left after Risk, and like mainly because of the backlash to that. But this. This album is a world away from that. This we take this this like is definitely the like the technical pinnacle of Megadeth. This mm. was when they were the most fresh they ever were. This is them going ninety miles an hour on every single song. This is yeah, this is like as bulls the wall fresh as you will ever get. And right. Maybe that signalled why they chose a change of direction mm. after it. But and I would definitely
2: put this up there as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, thrash album, I think, personally, that's ever been written. I, I mean, this is
0: it. That's always going to be a contentious point. There's a lot of arguments for a lot of different albums. But personally, I would say, I think this is the most consistent thrash album I mm. can think of. I All nine tracks are absolutely brilliant. Mm. Yeah, really love yeah. all of them. Whereas, for... First three Metallica albums I absolutely love, but every one of them has one song I'm not so into. Yeah. And yet, yeah, like, again, Ride the Lightning is a comparatively brilliant album. Um, Slayer's Raining Blood is absolutely excellent, but, mm. and I think I'd argue Slayer's Raining Blood is the most fresh album ever made. It has no mm. other influences. It's <laughs> literally <laughs> yeah. pure distilled thrash. whereas <laughs> exactly. this clearly has some other stuff coming into it. So this album starts in, and this is probably the best kind of summary of the sound they've got, with Holy Wars, A Punishment Due, which is almost seven minutes of high-paced, um, super technical, super fast riffs, um, like lightning-fast, blinding solos. Mm. Uh, Dave Mustaine's now kind of signature kind of snarl over the top of it yeah. Uh, and, and yeah it's very angry aggressive lyrics like this really
2: is the archetypal kind of fresh song mm-hmm. and this is the one that you know if you've listened to Megadeth this and the song that follows it Hanger 18 are the ones which you've probably heard some of the first songs you've ever listened to if you know Megadeth and they just as we were saying just, they just demonstrate those incredible leads, those really precise, fast drums, guitar, and this really grounding bass as well, which pull the whole package together. With like you know this level of technicality combined with incredible songwriting, which no one else has done in the same way that Megadeth have managed. Uh, this is definitely one of my favorite
1: Megadeth albums, if not my favorite. And it's starting an album with Holy Wars uh, is. Uh, I can't find the words to, to describe it. It is fast-paced, quality, very very intricate solos, very technically, it's really difficult, very memorable, lyrics, themes, everything. It is just an intro to... It, it just shows you that this album means business, and mm-hmm. it's serious business when you start with Holy Wars. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think the other thing that's really notable about this album, and probably more so than any they did, like, so much more so than the the three before, the production on it is incredible. Mm. The sound mm. they get out of the bass and drums makes this sound so heavy. Yeah. Like, the bass is really... For a thrash album, like, a lot of thrash albums, the bass is really not there in the mix. Like, yeah. even actually Master of Puppets, the bass isn't that loud on it. And, exactly. Yeah, yeah. with such an excellent player like Cliff, that seemed like such a weird choice, but... Dave on this album, um, or David, the, the bass player, is <laughs> incredible. He plays so well, so tightly, and it's such a good choice on this album to have that bass so prominent, so in your face. Yeah. And with Nick Menza's like, super tight, like really grooved bass drumming, like, this makes such a perfect rhythm section. I think that's more than anything is what makes it such a
2: memorable album and you need a really great rhythm section to hang all these solos off these, this trading of solos between Friedman and Mustaine you need a rhythm section that can hold the song down while this is going on and they do that perfectly
1: that's exactly right because the the solos are quite fast paced themselves you like you said you need the, the whole song to keep on to keep that pace you can't afford to have breakdowns in a thrash album such as this one you have to keep the pace high and that's exactly what they did, and especially you can see that especially with Holy Wars, because the solo is just a—it's a face <laughs> melter. I,
0: I, I hey. love that. That is one of my all-time favorite Dave Mustaine solos. Mm, the yes. one—it starts quick and just gets faster and yeah. faster it just and yeah. keeps on
1: going. it Keeps on going until you have a meltdown. <laughs> and then when you thought that everything was over, Hangar Eighteen.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Hanger Eighteen, I think the second single from the album. This, it, like again. Like Something I'm going to get to later is there's a lot of really weird risk-taking choices on this album mm. which because it's so tightly done, so smoothly produced, you sometimes don't notice but there's a lot of very odd choices here. So Hangar 18 has something like eight lines of vocals in the song yes. and the whole second half of the song is given up to a kind of Guitar solo trade off between Dave and Marty. Mm. Like uh, you've got to see the lyric book for this, where, where it's just like solo Dave, solo Marty, <laughs> solo Dave, so that, yeah. and it's a and guitar battle. It, it really yeah, is, yeah. but over such a good like set of mm. riffs. Like the riffs are super memorable, and for such shredding solos, they are memorable. You yeah. can if you played any of these solos in isolation you uh, and you could always tell what song it's from. Like exactly. they yeah. are yeah. real. which I don't know could be necessarily said for say if you took a solo out in isolation from like like Rain and Blood, for example, like mm. those aren't I, I guess they're not going for the same thing. Maybe mm. that's maybe it's an unfair comparison.
2: But it's certainly a testament to how well written the solos on this are, like and how it complements the riffs that are underneath. You can just tell which song it is 'cause it the solo is custom built for the song. And they really use this technicality to further the songwriting, which is like a just the mark of a mas- masterful songwriter. I think there's eleven guitar solos in this song.
1: Eleven, <laughs> I have counted <laughs> them. <laughs> That is quite incredible. It is incredible, and it just keeps coming and coming, and every single one of those solos is unique in itself. You could just use it in a standalone song, and it would just sound perfect. Mm-hmm. And they just put them all together. It was definitely the peak of Megadeth songwriting. Mm. But uh, as with Holy Wars in Hangar 18, this is I'm coming back to what I said earlier about Marty Friedman sounding quite Eastern.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah I'm, I'm sure you can tell which solos I'm talking about, where it's definitely all the Marty Friedman ones, they just sound like like something something you you'd listen in in china I don't know that that kind of stereotypical he, high he's, clean, clean. Clean.
0: he's clearly using some very Eastern scales in his writing, yeah. I think, whereas and that is such a departure from what was really common in like fresh soloing at the time, like even even Mustang is not using the. Yeah. That you can tell when each for so many solos you can tell when each of them's doing them mm. it's, just, it's quite an incredible thing like you can't do say like Judas Priest you can't tell where his uh, tips are not downing like yeah. Yeah. Oh, maybe, maybe some can I really <laughs> yeah. wouldn't be able to I'm
1: surprised that it works so well to be honest mm. yeah, yeah especially with this kind of music because it's so particular you need to have this high rhythm uh, fast rhythm you need to have uh, this the shredding face melters and yet Marty Friedman has just somehow managed to put this style in there and just made it all so perfect.
0: So mm. Marty Friedman pretty much had no part in the writing of this album. He, I think he just wrote his solos for it. Mm. It was pretty much like written when he got there. But I really do think it wouldn't be the same album if it wasn't for his seal on this. Absolutely. yeah. Um, so next we're going to... Um, the, we've had a lot of guitar shredding at this point. We go into the rhythm section shredding next <laughs> with Take No Prisoners, which is three minutes of just blinding fast riffing. Like, yeah, yeah. You get to the point with some of the riffs on this album where you can't tell what guitar's doing anymore. It's <laughs> so, I mean, the guitar and bass are just moving so quickly. Right? Yeah, and you
2: love this poor drummer and bass player who have to somehow keep up with all this madness <laughs> that's going on around well, them. Jesus. So they do. In this yeah. track, he even fits in a mini bass, though. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: It's a massive crowd pleaser. Take no prisoners, and oh, something really? I always look forward to listening because, mm. and especially with the uh, those those last two lines, take no prisoners, take no shit. Yeah, because it's so much emphasis on the word shit. Everyone loves it, and everyone joins in. Take no
4: shit.
0: So this is where we see the classic, um, that sort of thrash metal backing vocals are really in this song, where most of the lyrical delivery is actually. Dave Mustaine says a line, and you have like a cool re- response from the backing mm. vocals, and uh, all about just basically war crimes as far as I can tell. Like. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, like this song really actually works on that front. Like something I wanted to get to with this album. Like Dave Mustaine, much kind of like everyone takes a of him because his vocals aren't that good. But <laughs> I would argue on this album they are actually
2: quite decent. Thank you. This is, this is the album where it works. So I this think. is the yeah. only
1: album. The only Megadeth album where the Dave Mustaine lyrics just sound good. Mm. They fit the songs. He actually does have some range. Mm. And he—he he, the, the delivery is spot on. And every single one of his other albums, and even the live shows, there's just always something off. Yeah. And especially now in his later years, he's just sort of turned it into a
2: growl. Yeah, so yeah. Going, <laughs> 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 yeah, but but on the on this album, that sort of snarl like it fits the tone of the songs with this like vicious, aggressive streak to them. These incredible technical solos, you know, he sounds like he's in the moment and he means what he's saying, and that accentuates everything else about the album. And the the, the gang backing vocals really help to
0: break up like Dave Mustaine's extremely limited range and keep mm. keep things fresh. Like the, the other things should be noted as well. Like they can play all these songs live. The his guitaring ability—that he's mm. playing these rhythm sections, songs like "Take No Prisoner"—and still manage to just a focus on anything outside of that—is yeah. is testament to what a guitarist he is. I never
1: understood how he does it, but mm. he is clearly the most. And um, I'm uh, quoting McWall now here from the biography of Metallica. Even though when you have you have either of you read the book? No, actually, no, not. Actually, no, no. Okay, well, you see that when he does uh, mention when Dave Mustaine went to Metallica and all that shit mm. happened and everything. You see that Mick Wall, the author, he doesn't like Dave Mustaine. He reports the facts, but he also kind of slightly introduces his opinion on Mm. the man, which, uh, as many people will share, unfortunately, is not the best one. Yeah. Yeah, good old Dave. But uh, the one thing that he does say, and I'm quoting here, is that he was definitely the most talented out of the lot of the big four. And uh, I think it's easy to see that even now. Mm. He was always the best out of all of them. It's a shame that you know he didn't get along with anyone, or everyone didn't get along with him. It depends who you ask. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: it, it, like as much as you know, I've I've never met the man, and so on. Like, yeah. it's it's hard to judge, but he does seem like a difficult man to like. Mm-hmm. Like, he he's not made a lot of friends over the years, considering his
2: no, success and, think, and you know, popularity. Having, having read Mustang's autobiography as well, like he would perfectly admit that, particularly in his younger years, he was a tricky guy to get on with. Yeah, and to some extent, you know, all of them probably were in their own way difficult and you know these sort of things happen but we then end up with both Metallica and Megadeth making some fantastic albums at around the same time you get Rust in Peace and Ride the Lightning and I mean what more could you want? What a happy event in history when uh,
1: Dave Mustaine let's say left Metallica Mm. (laughs) but uh, something uh, as well that they all had in common and which probably did play quite a, a big role on this album was that they were all under the influence of some heavy stuff. Mm. and I think that's part of why there's so much energy in here and, and all this exploration and everything and uh, maybe even the vocals daring to take that extra step, uh, step mm. with their screaming and everything uh, it's it's a shame that the pinnacle had to be like this but that's the case with many bands I suppose mm.
0: yeah yeah, I, I think that's 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 absolutely right I mean maybe even this album's kind of responsible for the following the kind of thrash after this point because no one could top it. Like yeah. no, well, you no one do? could top yeah. what yeah. Slayer, Amphrex, Megadeth, like and a, f- a few others released at this point in time. Like they mm. really had and I don't think they've I, I don't think this has ever been bested as a kind of mm. standard fresh mm. album. Like and there's there's stuff that's kinda of gone in different directions with fresh but nothing that's kind of stayed down the middle of the road like, oh it's say down the middle of the road, getting into the next track, five magics. We have a, like another weird choice in this album where yeah. this song has a, a about two and a half minute intro with just, like, kind of instrumental Mm. weirdness. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah, like kind of really cool riffs, but, like, odd stuff. This isn't your standard, like, um, open string, palm muted, like, really fast chugging. This is, like, lots of weird interactions between the bass and drums, Mm. which Mm. eventually builds into the track Five Magics, which is the one point in the album I'd say the vocals do kind of tank this song to an extent. They are annoying in it. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Like, yeah yes. Bit. Yeah. it's, it's, it's right. got yeah. that sort of experimentation that almost slightly progressive influence in bits of it which you know you forget as soon as you get to the breakneck speed of another track but it's there when you actually look for it. I think it fits in rather well yeah, mm. after mm. Take No
0: Prisoners. Mm. The flow of the album does work for that for the position there of Five Oh yeah, definitely. You need a breather after Take No Prisoners really. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean you've had Holy Wars, Hangar 18 and Take No Prisoners all in
0: one <laughs> in, go. In a row, yeah. It's and uh, this album just keeps on, it's a gift that keeps on giving. So, following that, we have um, probably one of the weirdest inclusions on this album, uh, Poison Was the Cure, which starts in a similar way to Five Magics, where it's like a kind of slow, bass-driven riff, and then descends into madness, super-fast mm-hmm. Judas Priest riffs. Like, effectively, like <laughs> Judas Priest biker rock kind of yeah. <laughs> riffing. Just yeah. sped up <laughs> so so fast, yeah. And the guitar part to this because it sounds so nice and catchy, you sometimes forget just how quick this song yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. When I first heard this
1: song, I, I couldn't believe that a human being can actually play this fast. <laughs> I
0: was, I'm gonna use the word literally, blown away, yeah. Yeah, mm, I, I, mm. I, I think that's fair. So, yeah, and again, like, despite it having those kind of Judas Priest O Dave Mustaine's vocals don't ruin this, as you would expect. Like you explain the concept of this, you're like, "Well, clearly his vocals wouldn't work," but they do, they do just work they're... on yeah. this. Um, well, another
1: but... thing to note about this song is the length. It's only just uh, just over two minutes long, or so, isn't it? It's, it's just it's, under it's three, just three lessons, minutes, so yeah, just, yeah, yeah. And it's it reminds me of Slayer's "Necrophobic." It's just a bunch of <laughs> of heavy metal dumped onto your head, and then you think, you, "What the hell just happened?" <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a, lot, a lot of this album in a nutshell, really,
0: is it? <laughs> well, uh, and left questioning like that, you come into Lucretia that has the weirdest intro of, <laughs> of Dave Mustaine just doing a, a cackle. A, a, yeah. a bizarre cackle. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, so so Lucretia is probably more in the vein of like the second half of Five Magics. Actually, I think I've to say about Five Magics. Actually, that track massively reminds me of the Good Morning Black Friday part of um, Peace Cells, yeah. the way it's yeah, a I slow melodic build-up into oh, and then, quite a yeah. fast, flashy song, but yeah, they just yeah. sort of stuck the two together. Anyway, um, yeah, so any thoughts on Lucretia as a track? Beautiful uh, intro solo. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: That is Definitely. gorgeous. That is beautiful guitar work um but yeah it's uh it stands out doesn't it it's uh even though it does fit into the album it's definitely very very different to the other uh, to the others but uh it's it's an interesting angle and i definitely love the song
0: yeah as i say i don't think this album has a weak moment every mm. track is inherently very listenable and then we go into a definite fan favorite this yeah. is tornado of souls
2: which is such a catchy track i think it's worth mentioning as well just how many sort of live classics there are on this album yes and um, there are a few that haven't been played for a long time but the number of you know you've got hangar Routine, you've got holy wars you've got tornado of souls you've got take no prisoners you've got all these songs which are just fantastic no, live songs for, for a band who are now up to what like 11 12 albums
0: like something like that. Uh, 13 no wait uh, 14. 14. With, with, uh, 13, was 13. 13 was the previous one, yeah. Yeah. There's
2: Super Collider and then there's. So is it 15? We
0: said we wouldn't mention Super Collider. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so so for a band with this many albums out, there's four tracks on this that an audience would be actively upset if they didn't get. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that is quite a kind of feat for a band, really. Testament to how strong the album is in general. So yeah, Tornado Souls has just the some just very oddly written but extremely catchy riffing throughout. Mm. Like, uh, it's lots of these sort of kind of almost going up a scale riffs, but just slightly yeah. wrong. Uh, that just, and then moving back to the beginning, yes. yeah. Yeah, they just get wedged in your head. It's like every riff of this track is so memorable. And this is really Marty Freeman's Time to Shine his mm. solo in the middle of this song is melodic yeah, genius yeah. it
1: is one of the one of my all time favourite solos of all music ever I, 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 souls, I, I don't I don't think I can argue with that mm-hmm.
0: but yeah um, yeah, I don't know if there's much more to say about the song it's, beyond it it is men- it's, it's fantastic yeah. oh, sorry,
1: I have to mention the drumming the drumming there's a there's a bit, a bit I guess you could call it a breakdown where it's just Dave Mustaine singing and uh, a light riff, and then the 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 pedaling behind yeah. mm-hmm. it is just mm-hmm. it just sets the mood, and it, it like you said, like we said earlier for um, for Holy Wars and Hangar Teen, it just keeps the rhythm but adds that extra extra punch in the face.
0: Yeah, yeah. like uh, Nick Menzer, is it's, he's kind of an odd character in the metal world of just like he doesn't seem to get much love despite like. He really helps make this album. It would definitely. not have been yeah.
1: definitely. Yeah. would never be the same without Nick Menza. Yeah, yeah. And, and
0: and very sadly, Nick Menza also passed away like mm. recently this year. Mm, yeah. So yeah. and unfortunately, like he didn't do a huge amount outside of Megadeth, which is is a real shame because a guy genius drummer. So play, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to have seen them live during this touring with this lineup, unfortunately, we're all a bit too young for that. But yeah, uh,
2: <laughs> one year old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rob not born. <laughs> Fair way off being born at this point, but um, yeah. Then, then we move on to Dawn Patrol, which is sort of the odd one out of the album, definitely. Which is um written by Olafson, I believe. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, is just this sort of bass and drums, weird, sinister. You know, like not even two minutes long. With Dave doing some sort of spoken word vocals over the top. So because it's so short, I I really like it actually. Um, it has this really sinister theme, which I think is really cool.
0: Yeah, so it's it's kind of a sort of a short bit of poetry by Mustaine about kind of nuclear winter type, um, mm. like kind of end of the world scenario. Over this, just yeah, this really tight drum and bass groove, which I'm yeah. really fond of. You said that Arrested, you, you're not a fan of this track.
1: I never understood it, and it's I don't mind listening to it, but I just don't. I don't understand what it's all about what's it doing on this album it, I, I know for the lyrics like you said the nuclear winter fits in with the whole nuclear theme that's running through the album but I, I just don't get it <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough I
0: think this would be the obvious track to to kind of flag as a weird one in the lineup yeah. and, but again it plays into that theory of like this is an album where they took an incredible amount of risks and yes, 90% right. of them pay yeah, off it all to work, yeah Um, yeah Orestes brings up the the general theme of this album does seem to be like centered around kind of because this is like a height of nuclear paranoia as Mm -hmm. well and there is a huge theme of just fear of nuclear weapons and so on. The, the album title, Dave Mustaine, took from a bumper sticker. He, <laughs> yeah, he's saw <he's laughs> like, well, while speeding home after skydiving, this is in the lyric booklet, um, he saw a bumper sticker that said, um, may all your nuclear weapons rust in peace. And he was like, that's the album title. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you, bumper stickers. Yeah, and, and the whole
2: sort of nuclear war theme is really tied together by the last song, which is Rust in Peace, Polaris. Which again is a weird one because, as we were saying, like so, both this song, Polaris and Five Magics, have never been played live until the 20 year anniversary. Or, or, or I is, think Poison Was the Cure and yeah. Lucretia. As yep. well, yeah. There's yeah. a
0: whole chunk of this, which is weird considering it's only their fourth album. Yeah. yeah. And they were touring a lot at this mm. time, but just a lot of these tracks never made it in the
2: live lineup. And how, particularly for me, as when I got to have, like the drum intro of Rust in Peace was yeah. just iconic. Definitely. Like, mm. I just couldn't forget it. It was so great.
0: That, that is a very cool groove like mm. and yeah to have that then then backed up when the guitar and bass come in <laughs> and, along and, with and it. somehow
2: this sort of abstract drum groove fits into the riff perfectly and it's modified a little bit but it's the same sort of thing and it's
1: yeah it's masterful work Vastly underrated in my opinion Rust in Peace Polaris even though mm. it's the title track the fact that they've chosen not to play it on so many live shows I think it w- it could make it as one of the big crowd pleasers mm. yeah, I, I yeah. don't know why it, it every single bit of that song is great and memorable like you yeah, said from yeah. the beginning from the from the that, that drumming intro the riff is extremely memorable and quite easy to learn on the guitar as well so that's that's that, no but that's good yeah, for, yeah. Oh, for yeah, aspiring guitarists
2: um, is, a lot of Megadeth is almost well, unreachable. I, I would yeah. say pretty
0: much the rest of
2: this album...
0: It's impossible. Mm. Just, just no.
1: It's, de- it's depressing. You start, you think, oh, maybe, and then you know reality just hits you, you're not Dave Mustaine, and then you just cry in a corner. <laughs> I, I think that is most guitarist
0: experience on this album. Or mm. bass players, or drummers. <laughs> Vocalists love Vocalists it. Vocalists love it.
1: Interestingly, the only album out of the five we've done tonight that the vocals aren't Yeah,
0: the the (laughs) vocals aren't the kind of spectacular center point. We we
2: have this strange thing with the albums where we've covered Dio, Bruce Dickinson and JB who are undoubtedly phenomenal vocalists. (laughs) And then we have these two slightly more weird vocalists in Dave Mustaine and Tim Baker who are more of an acquired taste. I don't know whether you're... Insulting Tim Baker or complimenting Dave Mustaine, there. Well, so I'm, <laughs> I'm so I personally much more enjoy Tim Baker's vocals, say. but he's definitely the acquired taste type of vocalist, <laughs> and I think most of the time Dave Mustaine is as well. Um, and on this album, it's where it really works. I thing with the big the four, the big four uh,
1: thrash singers, is that they're not great vocalists, but they are perfect for the music that
0: they right. write. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I say um, for Anthrax, like. Except vocal... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well. Belladonna though, like Anthrax really got good in the vocal department when John Bush came in because exactly. he mm-hmm. he really mm-hmm. is an accomplished, like very good singer. Whereas Belladonna is great for Anthrax, but probably isn't. If you listen mm-hmm. to his solo stuff, really isn't a vocalist that can make everything about him. They need the, the Anthrax riffing. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And, and that's very true of Dave Mustaine as well. But again, like as we were saying, this album is where all of that comes together to produce, you know, I would masterpiece. say masterpiece. Megadeth's
0: masterpiece, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've got the the re-release uh, version of this, there's a couple of uh, bonus tracks on the end of it. Most of most of the bonus tracks on the whole re-release set were kind of pointless because they're just slightly naff quality demos. And... Yeah, I never understood that either. It's just weird but yeah the, the, his, the first track is a piece the only piece that uh nick menza has a writing credit on is the the, the, the minute-long song my creation which i don't get hang on, hang on i think i think i can do it hang on
4: it's a life <laughs> <laughs> that's a good taste of what to
0: expect <laughs> I <laughs> I think I I think we we've probably talked about enough about Rustin Beast. so like you can tell, we're all clearly big fans of it. And they, like when I say, uh, possibly one of my favorite thrash albums. No disrespect to others. There's many brilliant bands in the genre, and I would argue Megadeth probably definitely not in my top three or four thrash bands. Like, but this album was where the jet just came together and mm-hmm. nailed it. And because we we showed so much love for it earlier, before we leave you with uh, Tornado of Souls. So. Um, yeah, so a few things we should mention about the podcast recently. We've um we've managed to get on iTunes, which which was exciting. Um, Yay. Yeah, um we now have a Facebook page as well, so if you just search Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook, if you wanna send us abuse about missing all your favourite points of this these albums, <laughs> call us idiots for being rude about Slayer. Like <laughs>
1: <laughs> More hate yeah, mail. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, um come there if you want to get in touch. It'd be great to like hear people's thoughts on this. Or if you Want to get in touch more in private, um, send us an email to philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com. Anyway, this is Tornado of Souls.